This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. 2018-2019 is the 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. We've been observing this anniversary this year at Westminster Seminary, California, and this is the 10th season of Office Hours, so in some ways it's fitting to be thinking about the Synod and Canons of Dort. Lots of people know about the so-called five points of Calvinism, but fewer people know that these five points were formulated by a gathering of ministers, theologians, and in this gathering also there were civil officials. Some of those ministers and theologians were from the Netherlands, but others came from the British Isles, and some from the Palatinate, and Hesse, and Nassau, Bremen, and Emden in what today we know as Germany. Others came from the Swiss cantons, Geneva, in Zurich, and Basel, and Bern, and Schaffhausen. And the delegates from France would have attended had the French crown permitted, but of course he didn't, and they didn't attend, so they left an empty bench in their memory. Herman Zelderheis is on campus this week to talk with us about the Synod and Canons of Dort. He's a remarkably busy man, and we're grateful to have him on campus. He's a minister in the Christelijke Gereformatikerken in the Netherlands. He graduated from the Theological University of Appledorn in the Netherlands. He served congregations as a pastor for 10 years before becoming professor of church history and church polity in his alma mater. He did his doctoral research on Martin Bootser's teaching on marriage and divorce. He's director of the REFO 500 Project and the International Calvin Congress, among other things. Herman is a remarkably busy, industrious, and productive scholar and pastor. He's author of a marvelous book on Calvin's Theology of the Psalms. One of my probably favorite books in the last 20 years that I've read is that volume. He's also editor of the Calvin Handbook and of the two-volume Reformation Commentary on the Psalms and the Handbook of Dutch Church History, among many other things. Hi, Herman, and welcome to Office Hours. Hello, Scott. Thank you for inviting me. I really do love your book on uh, Calvin's Yeah, I just heard that. Honestly, one of the things that I loved about it is that you got the connection between Calvin and Luther on the theology of the cross as it comes out in Calvin's reading of the Psalms. And in the States and in the Anglo-Reformed world, broadly the Anglo-American Reformed world reading of Calvin, Luther is sometimes omitted from the story. And I'm convinced that if you don't know Luther, you're really going to have a difficult time understanding Calvin. Yeah, I agree with you. I think there there's truth in the word of an old German Reformation scholar who said that Luther's best pupil was John Calvin. And uh, if you read carefully, you can find a lot of Luther in John Calvin. It's too bad these two never met. They were from different generations. But um, Calvin was a big defender of Luther. He said, uh, even if he calls me whatever yeah. name, <laughs> but I'll, you know, I'll see him as a real man of God, appreciate it. And you can find that in his works. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. He was devoted to Luther and remarkably reluctant to criticize him. Yes. He only criticized him on a very small range of things, and mainly it was for rhetorical excess. Yes, and um, they all struggled with Luther's temper. Yes. And Kelvin says, I'm happy to forgive him because what he has done for the church and for theology, you know, just let him be the man he is. Yeah. And the more important than the personal thing is, of course, the theological thing, what came across. See, the image that Luther and Kelvin are not on the same level has also been created first by Lutherans themselves and yeah. their distancing from Kelvin and Calvinists, but also from people from the Kelvin tradition say, well, Luther and Kelvin, you know, that's German and French. That's two worlds. 
Yeah, and that's a pretty significant misunderstanding of Calvin and Luther. Well, let's get to know you a little bit. The listener may well know you from your published work, but they may not have heard your voice. So it's good to hear you in We Wah Woke. You don't want me to sing, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I don't know. We we could work that out, I guess. But um, So tell us, first of all, how you came to faith and a little bit about your denomination. We'll just call it the CKN for short. Yes. My mother was and is a member of that church, so that's more a pietistic, Puritan church in the Netherlands. When you say pietistic, what does that word mean? So there is a lot of attention for the personal faith, for the experience of faith, for the questions, are you elect or not? So there is the seriousness of your sinfulness and the need of regeneration. So there's a lot of reflective aspects in sermons in the tradition. So this is the message, but do you know anything of it yourself? Is there a connection between your tradition and what in the States I've heard described as the black stocking tradition? Yes, yeah. That's Svartekozenkerk, uh, we say. That is uh, part of the tradition. So now in some wings of that tradition, for example, people wait. And I had a woman in my congregation who would not come to the Lord's table because she had not the blessing. Her dad had gone and the elders had come to her house and said, you know, you haven't gotten permission. You haven't proved to us that you've had a sufficient quality of religious experience. Is that part of your Yes, that's part of it. It has to do with the stress on the Kenneth Dort say total depravity and that we need regeneration and we cannot organize it ourselves. So only the elect get that. And there is a real experience of conversion that you can point out so that it was this moment. It was when hearing this sermon. And if you do not have that or you cannot tell about that, then you are left in a certain uncertainty about that. It's not as strong as it was in our church but uh, that's how I was brought up. My oh, father is not a church member, okay. so he's an unbeliever. So I was raised in, in this double tradition. So my sister and me, we were not baptized as children. Interesting. So on the one hand, you have a very intense form of Reformed theology and piety, yep. and on the other side of your family, antipathy. Yes, like when I told my father's mother that I wanted to become a pastor— she really scorned me and laughed at me. You know, <laughs> don't believe all these jokes about yeah. God and stuff like that. Stay away from that. So she was very anti-Christian. Uh, my father, when he married my mother, he was a soccer player, a good soccer player. And he played on Sundays and he said, I'll stop uh, because that church that I go to also has a strong stress on the uh, Sabbath rest. And he said, you know, it, it cannot be the, the true that you are in church and I'm at the soccer field. So I'll stop with that. So he respected that all the time. Also my decision to become a pastor. But it was a, another situation. And at the age of you know, 15, I started going to church more regularly. And then when I was 16, I said, I would like to be baptized and become a member of the church. And uh, I told my mother that I wanted to do that. She had never done confession of faith either because of her situation, mm. because she married someone who is not a Christian. Yeah, outside the church. Yeah, yeah. which is a wrong decision. Um, that's how she saw that. Not My dad was the wrong choice. Yeah. starting this marriage. And then she said, then I'll join you. And it was just two weeks ago, 40 years ago, that my mother and me did Confession of Faith in that same church where I was wow. baptized also. Okay. And then after that, half a year later, my sister, uh, she had herself baptized also. So that's um, our situation. And then I wanted to know more about Bible and about God. And as a child, I was already interested in, in history. And then I thought, well, what's the best place to learn more about God is going to a theological university. So that's where I ended up. And then during that studies, I got the awareness that I should become a pastor. In that theological university, we have a system of an admission exam. 
and that is a talk with nine ministers for mm. two hours about your personal relation with the Lord and your motives for becoming a pastor. So that is quite an exam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I want the listener to understand that we do not have that system here. So oh, we... <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, <laughs> all right, that's fascinating. Yeah, that is so interesting. And so this was at the Theological University in, in Appledore. In Appledore, yes, yeah. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Now, the educational system in the Netherlands is a little different than it is here in the states. So, what would the equivalent of a theological university be in the U.S.? Um, it is a university with one faculty, in fact. Uh So it is uh, paid for largely by the state and it is uh, governed by the church. That is the situation. So it would be a regular state university, but with just one theological faculty with the difference that the church decides on what's going to happen. So we have to meet up to the state standards of education and research, but we are an independent institution. The other thing is that there is a strong connection. So it's something Maybe you would call it a combination of seminary and university. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sort of a Christian college or a Christian university with a theology faculty. Yeah. So, and that has roots in the Netherlands going back to the great University of Leiden. Yes. So. Leiden, 16th century, and then Utrecht. And uh, so we're a little younger. <laughs> we're more fresh. And uh, your denomination, as I found online, has about 75,000 members. Just so the listener has a sense of proportion. Our major supporting denominations are the Orthodox Presbyterians, the United Reformed Churches in North America, and the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And altogether, they make up about 500,000. But the OPC is about 40,000 members. The URCs are about 25, 24,000 members. And then the rest of that would be the PCA. And then there are other groups as well that would fit in there. But 75,000 would make the CGK probably the second largest or perhaps the second largest confessional reform denomination in North America. Well, then we should immigrate because <laughs> the Netherlands, we're one of the smallest. <laughs> yes, yeah, That's the yeah. other interesting thing. Things have been changing in the Netherlands since 2004. There was a merger forming what we'll call the PKN, the Protestant Churches of the Netherlands. What is the state of Reformed Christianity in the Netherlands now? You know, more than 10 years now, 15 years after the yes, merger. Yes, well, I, I could speak for three hours on the <laughs> various uh, Reformed denominations that came out of the 19th century discussions, but that doesn't help much. The situation right now is that, in fact, the Reformed tradition is quite stable. So the membership is quite stable. There is uh, some discussion about how missionaries should a Reformed church be in a changing situation in the Netherlands, because the big churches, they have lost a lot of members. So the liberal theology is slowly moving out, and uh, what remains are those that really want to be Christian or Reformed or Evangelical. So the situation where it was quite natural that if you were in the Netherlands, you would be either Catholic or Protestant, that has passed. See, there's a growing number of um, Islamic people in the Netherlands, so that's a very strong force. And uh, over against that, uh, there is this um, strengthening of the reform tradition. Oh, that's fascinating. That is not what I would have thought. So that was against my expectations. In the States, when we went through those kinds of mergers in the 1930s, the confessional reformed churches were mostly marginalized, and the mainline churches inherited all of the institutions, the funds, the buildings, and most of the people. 
and then proceeded to, from my perspective, to mainly to drive them off the cliff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right? So for the last number of decades, probably the last three decades at least, the mainline churches mostly are losing about 70,000 members a year and apparently quite happy yes. to do that. And yet those people are not necessarily gravitating to confessional reformed alternatives. Either they go nowhere or they go to independent churches or mega churches, perhaps. Yep. We have these giant non-denominational mega churches with no particular confession and a lot of emphasis on either experience or particularly on Sunday morning on what we might call mm-hmm. entertainment, I guess, for yeah. lack of a better word. Yeah, the mainline churches in the Netherlands, they lose a lot of members also. But see, if a church denomination consists of, say, 60% mainline and 40% Orthodox Reformed, and this 60% goes to 30, then the Reformed turned to 70, right? So that means a strengthening. Oh, it's not a real growth in numbers, but a stronger position and also a growing awareness of the relevance and the solidity and the biblical basis of Reformed Christianity that's happening. Well, that's encouraging. Well, you are a scholar of the history of Reformed theology, and you're a Dutchman, and you're in the Netherlands, so it would stand to reason that you have a special interest, I would think, in the canons of Dort. It's one thing for us in North America and elsewhere, and I know that we have listeners to office hours from all over the globe, but it's one thing for us in North America to be reflecting on the canons, but for you, in a way, it's local history, right? For us, it's not only long ago, but it's also far away. Yes. Well, first— I am a professor of church history, so I like jubilees, I like celebrations and commemorations. And then uh, after uh, 2017, 500 years of Reformation, you know, 2018, 2019, 400 years, Skinners of Dordets and Synod of Dordets, and, you know, that is wonderful. But I also try to demonstrate and to speak speak in such a way to show that this is not just a local thing. It's not some city somewhere in the Netherlands 400 years ago, old stuff, interesting for historians and older people. But I try to make clear that this is very, very relevant. It's about faith, where it comes from, about can I keep my faith in times of distress and what happens to uh, believers that you know, get Alzheimer and maybe starts saying things that does not fit to their conviction. What happens to children that die before birth? And yeah, energy? people might not realize that. You know, when we boil down the canons to five points, yes. we lose out on things like 117, where their synod was dealing with a very real pastoral problem of what do we say about infants, covenant children, children yes. of believers yeah. who die in infancy, yeah. which was you know, infant mortality in the pre-modern period was much higher than it is today. It was. It was so that's why this also was a very relevant discussion those days. But this happens still today. Sure. Children that pass away before birth or at early birth, early years. So we have to pastor, take care of these people, and we have to answer their questions as far as we can. And I think the canons of Dort are very helpful in this. So that the pastoral content of Dort that needs to be discovered anew. Yeah. There are many images about canons of Dort, but not too many have read them. And I think it will be very helpful <laughs> to just read. I think that is an obvious thing to say, but it's so important to actually go back and reread the canons yes, and yeah. read them not merely as a doctrinal theory, but as pastoral advice from ministers and theologians, but mostly ministers. Right? The theologians who were delegated constituted a relatively smaller proportion. I mean, the line between pastors and theologians maybe is a little Oh, fuller. yes. And see, these canons were not invented by a computer. Exactly. These were written by people who had stood at graves of yeah, their own yeah, children. Right. And all of them had been ministers, pastors. So they knew that they were talking about. <laughs> 
And that's also why they were so, uh, how should I say, so yeah. resolute in standing against these remonstrants or what the Americans say are these Armenians, because there was a serious attack on the message of grace and assurance of faith. So you're thinking about seminary, but you're asking yourself, where will I live in Escondido? Westminster Seminary California has good news. We've completed Westminster Village, a beautiful new place for you to live on campus. Open now, Westminster Village features eight residential buildings, 64 apartments including one, two, and three-bedroom units, and a commons where seminary families can fellowship together. Here's Joel Kim, president of Westminster Seminary California, on the benefits of Westminster Village. Escondido is a beautiful place in which to live, but students wonder if they can actually afford it. Our goal is to benefit the students by providing a beautiful but affordable place to live on campus. In addition, we believe that learning happens not only in the classroom, but also by living together in community. Just as lifelong learning begins in the classroom, so lifelong relationships will begin in our new residential village. For more information, call toll-free 888-480-8474. That's 888-480-8474. Or visit us online at wscal.edu. That's wscal.edu. And ask us about our new residential residential village. WSCAL.edu 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California. For Christ, His Gospel, and His Church. When the Remonstrants or the Remonstrants reformulated Reformed theology, they introduced a kind of conditionality into Reformed theology that really changed it and in significant ways took it back to the Middle Ages in some ways. We were just going through in our medieval Reformation course, William of Ockham. We walked through SCOTUS carefully Mm -hmm. (laughs) and William of Ockham. And then by the time I get to Ockham, I say, now you're beginning to understand some of what Arminius you know, was beginning to say, some of the things he was beginning to say, and ideas that would be picked up on and elaborated by the remonstrants. And these very same kinds of ideas are the kinds of ideas against which Synod was reacting, the pastors were reacting, because they saw what it would do to assurance of faith. They saw what it did to the nature of the gospel. It's no longer an announcement of the unconditional love of God for sinners. It's now an announcement of the conditional love or the love of God for those who meet certain conditions. Yes, and I think that keeps coming back in history. And it is also very attractive in the sense that I have to make myself acceptable for God. As, you know, if going on a date, you dress up nice and you put on some aftershave and you want to smell (laughs) and look good, right? Otherwise, she might say, oh, no, you're not my kind of type. But that's not how God works. No, he accepts us the way we are and he does not have any conditions. And I think that is the wonderful message and it is so important to keep saying that without going the other extreme yeah. that we can sin whatever we sure. want. He's going to accept us anyways. And it's not like Synod was disinterested in the Christian life and in no, sanctification. They, no. they were passionately yes. interested in and committed to the notion that getting these things right would lead to true godliness. Yes. I compare it to coming home with flowers, uh, which we do in Netherlands. I don't know if you do that, but oh, we yes, do Yes, it happens yes, here. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Especially if you miss a, an anniversary right. or something. 
<laughs> but um, I do not come home with flowers in order to get in the house. No. So that's not a condition. I give flowers to my wife because I know she likes those. So it's also a sign of appreciation. That's what good works. Good works yeah. is not a condition, but it's a way of saying thanks to God, of, of life pleasing to him. Well, that's why the yeah. Heidelberg is in three parts, that's right? right? Guilt, yes. grace, and yes. gratitude. Yeah. And gratitude yeah. flows out of union with Christ and out of thankfulness. In fact, Scott, I think it is such an easy understanding message. I don't know why these Reminiscent messed the whole thing up. It's an interesting question, and you were talking about that today with the students. How and why did Arminius get where he got? And uh, like you, I've been meditating on the canons this year and doing some reading and you know rereading Arminius and reading about Arminius and about the Remonstrants and rereading their documents yeah. so that I can talk about it intelligently. And I feel like I'm a little closer to understanding. I think you hit on something really important, and that is the personal background for Arminius, that what the Spanish did to his family really created, in some ways, a crisis for him. Yes. That probably is a better explanation than the one that is often given that he reacted to Beza. I'm not saying there was nothing of that, but that his personal experience colored his theological development. Yes. In general, I think there is always a relation between theology and biography. And you can see that in Luther, you see it in Calvin, and we should take that into account Arminius also. See, I grew up in my studies also that the name of Arminius, you know, that already made you sick just hearing the name because, no, he was such a scary guy. But if you read him, say, well, he tries to find a way out of this situation where the Spanish killed his parents. And he said, it cannot be so that the Spanish are not responsible, that you have to blame it all on God. So he was searching. And uh, he did that as a professor. Uh, I'm convinced that his standpoints in the end, you know, they turn out the way the remonstrants did. But at that moment, it was different. He was looking, and yeah. then he ran into Homaros, and they got in debates. Then it escalated into a political debate also yeah. that made it very complex. Which is, again, hard for Americans to grasp. But in that setting, in that context, for there to be that kind of debate wasn't simply a religious discussion. No, no, the no. The existence of the Dutch Republic was at stake at the Senate of Dort. It's difficult, as I say, as Americans, I think, for us to understand how intertwined those institutions are. Yes, it was in the time of the Spanish occupation. So if I would translate the situation to, say, 1942. So we have the Germans taking possession of the Dutch, and the Dutch want their freedom. And there's a group that says, no, we have to obey the Germans, yeah, because they're the government. Yeah. Then you say, oh, no way. Well, that was the remonstrant position, in fact. And that made it much more complicated in those days. So, yeah, these things are intricately and intimately intertwined. For you, for example, you were noting today that there are school buildings, Christian schools, named after the president of the Synod of Dort, which doesn't exist here. We have schools named after Dort, but I doubt that there's a Johannes Bogerman School anywhere in the U.S. Maybe there is. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe in Canada. Maybe in Canada. Yeah, or maybe we should say not yet. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not yet. Yeah, it's yes, a possibility. Yes, start the movement. <laughs> <laughs> History is not done. Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. Okay, listener, get on that. If your next Christian school you start, name it after Johannes Bogerman. He is the Prices, the president of the Synod of Dort. Yes, I think he did a good job. So he's a guy from Friesland. Yeah. Uh, which gives him something extraordinary, you know, really tough guy. His name should be Boger Mansma. Boger Mansma, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yes. That, that would make yeah. it clearer to Yeah, make it clearer, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
One of the students asked a very interesting question, and I thought your answer was worth repeating here. And the question was, we know a little bit about the Remonstrants in the 17th century, but what happened to them since, and where are they now? And you told some very interesting things about the Remonstrants today that I'm almost certain that the listener doesn't know. I compared the uh, position Remonstrants and Counter-Remonstrants like two trains leaving the station. One is going to the right, to the left, and for some time you can still see each other, but you end up at a completely different destination. The Remonstrants ended up in a position right now where they have given up any faith in a personal God. Mm. So their official doctrine is God is a construction of us. And their last campaign, two years ago, public campaign to get some new membership because the membership is going on very fast. I think they still have like 4,000 members and their 95% is over 65, is my God is a homosexual, my God is in me, my God is my body. So God is not the personal God but he is something in you or off you or something else. Or, it was quite shocking. Or a reflection of your consciousness. That's right, yes. So we all have our own God. We all make our own God. That is their doctrine. And the message is just get some from this godliness in society, so be a friendly uh, person. Be nice. Yeah, be nice. But it has nothing to do with the biblical message of salvation or, or anything else. That's amazing. Well, in the United States, as you, I'm sure, know, uh, we have a fairly robust Arminian movement, as we would say, or there are different kinds of Arminians. We have evangelical Arminians. And it's probably the case that of the 60 million American evangelicals that the majority of them identify in one way or another or are implicitly you know, by default, some variety of Arminian. So we have a somewhat different experience of them. Although we have Unitarians here, Mm -hmm. and I know because I used to be one as a boy, that was one of my earliest places of religious instruction was in the Unitarians. And they are the heir of the Socinians, and they trace themselves back to the Remonstrants. This is right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, let me put it this way. The Arminians that you mentioned as to the states, I think they're more, as far as I know, not the same as the remonstrants. No. See, they stick to Scripture. They only have this problem with this doctrine of predestination, and they want some more free will. As th- that's my impression of it. Even some Puritan like Richard Baxter adhere to that position. But that's why I think this label of Arminian should change because it is not really the Arminian position. Yeah, it's confusing and it's misleading. It's confusing. Yeah. At least for a foreigner like me, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can be here too, yeah. so for us as well. I don't want to tie you up, and this has been interesting and edifying, but one of the things I wanted you to touch on for us is to talk to us a little bit about some of the other things that Synod did that don't get very much attention, but which were, in the original context, really important. For example, the Church Order of Dort. Yes, like I said, it was in the position of Spanish occupying the Netherlands, and they were preparing for how do we organize a church once we get rid of the Spanish and we have a free church again. And then they defined the Dutch church order, which in fact is Calvin's way of looking at pastors, elders, deacons, the structure of synod and classes. A classes is a regional gathering. Regional gathering, yes. Ministers yes, and elders. Yeah, and, yeah. and typically a synod can also be a regional gathering, but typically a national gathering. Yes, at least in our Dutch context, that is. 
So that was very important. What is the task of the elders? A subscription to the forms of unity, Belgian Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, and then also the Canons of Dort. Uh, who can be baptized and who cannot? What is the situation, the relation of the church and the state? So that was all defined in the Dutch church order. Who can come to the Lord's table? How worship should be conducted? There's yes, a, there's the, a, liturgical things. What yeah. do we sing? What don't we sing? Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. What do you think about uh, the hymn or the – it says um, in the uh, Church Order of Dort, God who our Father art or w- whatever it says. There's some debate about what that song was because it says you can sing the 150 Psalms of David and it lists a couple of other places in Scripture that you can sing. And then it says it's sort of by local option you can sing this song. And I've sort of concluded it must have been a, a paraphrase of the Lord's Prayer. Yes, it was. It was. But th- there's some unclarity about this. Yeah. Just one of my colleagues wrote a book on where do these hymns these few hymns that were allowed to come from. Dortz took the Kelvin line, so we sing only what God has given us in Scripture. And you can find it in the church order. Which is the traditional Reformed view. It is. Not very popular these days. No. No, no. <laughs> but it was the Reformed practice. They also addressed things like missions. We don't think, uh, perhaps, of the Synod of Dort relative to missions, but we should, that they were actually thinking about taking the gospel beyond the Netherlands, beyond Europe. They're beginning to be aware of the new world and that the gospel is something that needed to be taken to the new world, yes. which, which is where you and I are right now in, in uh, I, I'm the new world. I'm glad that you mentioned that because, like you said, the images, the canons of Dort, you know, they destroy every sort of missionary activity because it's it's all predestination. Yeah. If you read the documents, they say predestination is not our business. You know, that's God's side. Our task is go out and preach the word as Jesus has told us. So there is a lot of missionary incentive in these canons of Dort. Go out and preach. Even the free offer of the gospel, right? Oh, well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Right, which is in some places is regarded as controversial. But if you read the Reformed theologians and the confessions and the canons themselves, when they say serious, they mean a genuine offer of Christ and forgiveness and salvation to whoever will believe it. Yes. We're not sitting around guessing, well, I'm not going to offer Christ to you because you don't look elect to me. No. We, we preach <laughs> and uh, what happens to the hearts is a matter of God. That's God's business. The interesting yeah. th- thing is that, uh, at least for the Netherlands, the churches that strongest stick to the canons of Dort are also the strongest in missions. Mm. And I think that says enough. In uh, North America, we have some traditions that profess adherence to the canons, but when they say missions or evangelism, mainly they're talking about straightening everybody out. They're not actually talking about reaching lost people. So it's interesting how these things get mediated across uh, time, space, uh, cultural boundaries. One of the things that Synod did was to authorize an edition of Scripture right, and translations of the confessions. Yeah, the uh, very influential was the decision of Synod to make a new Bible translations. There were some translations in Dutch, but they were all not too good or only part of Scripture was translated. They said, we need a good translation, a translation right out of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. And we appoint a committee to work on that. And that translation was published 1637. And what's it called? It's called the Statenvertaling, so the translation by the states. So the states, so the politicians, they paid for that translation. So this is an official translation of Scripture. Yes. And that had tremendous authority in the Netherlands and in some ways still does. It still looms large in the background of things. Yes, still many churches use that translation only. There is a revised edition that's been published a couple of years ago, but they stick very close. And I must say, although my church allows other translation also, that often 
often when I preach, I say, well, this is what our translation is. But what it really says, you can read it in the style of Italian, <laughs> because they stick very close to what the word says. So in the Anglo world, of course, the King James King version James, for yes. yep. centuries served something like that purpose, yep. although it was never actually officially adopted. And there are multiple editions still for many people. And there are American denominations for which the King James is the only translation that can be used. Yes. Yeah, I know. That's not so much the case now as it was maybe even 25 years ago, but it's still there. So that might help the listener understand some of the influence of the Stone yes. Vitale. Yeah. One last thing, and that is this. When we think about the Synod of Dort and we think about the five heads of doctrine, and of course, third and fourth are combined into one, it can be a little overwhelming, especially when somebody comes to it from the outside for the first time. So help the listener, encourage the listener to go read a good translation of the canons this way. What is the good news as presented in the canons of the Synod of Dort? The good news is that God accepts you the way you are unconditionally. He gives you his Holy Spirit that assures you of eternal salvation, that you will not lose your faith, and that this message of grace encourages you to a sanctified life in service to him and to others. I think that is the bottom line of the Canons of Dort. And if we start with that and we make uh, some selections for people to read, then they will get interested in knowing more about it. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash office hours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.